Well, good morning again. It's good to see you all. Thanks so much for gathering here this morning. Thank you for bringing the church into uh, this sanctuary. If you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint and we've never met, my name is Jamie. It's my joy and it's my great privilege to be one of the pastors uh, here. If you're gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church into uh, your living room, wherever you're tuning in uh, from. Uh, thanks for escaping all of you for the for the heat for just, just a moment, although I still feel like it's hot in here. But anyway, um, it's cooler than it is out there. So anyway, I'm glad to be gathered with you all. We are in this series over the next few weeks. What we've been doing is this series called Peaks and Valleys, where we're looking at various Psalms that just help us grapple with the reality of there are these mountaintop experiences and we can celebrate how God is at work in those and give praise to him. But we also know the reality of life that there's these valleys, there's a wilderness that we'll even look at uh, this morning and there's a, a darkness that can happen. How do we continue to, to praise God in the midst of that, even when things don't go according to the plans that we might have had, right? What does it look like to faithfully follow Jesus? How can he minister to us in those places? And how does he uniquely minister to us is what we're actually gonna look at this morning in those places of the desert, the, the wilderness. And so I wanna invite you to turn to Psalm 81. Uh, the song that we just sang a moment ago comes directly from this particular Psalm. You'll see as we get to the last verse in this Psalm, uh, we hear this line, this honey in the rock, and we're gonna explore that theme together. And so if you brought a Bible, please turn there. If you didn't, you can scan the QR QR code in the uh, pew in front of you. Um, that'll bring up a menu where you can click sermon notes and you can see the text there, space to follow along to take notes. You can always go to thisiscp.church and click that little uh, steps icon uh, as well. But uh, if you're able, I wanna invite you, please stand as I read God's word. I wanna read all of Psalm 81 and then we'll make our way back through this. But we will see as the concluding verse is gonna kind of set the, the overall theme for this that shows up in verse 16. So Psalm 81, hear God's word this morning. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress, you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him and their fate would last forever. Verse 16, but he would feed you with the finest of the wheat. And with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So friends, as we get into this particular text this morning, we are gonna start by looking at verse 16, where there's this promise that the Lord makes, like, but he would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock, the Lord says, I will satisfy you. What we have in Psalm 81 really is a Psalm of 
wilderness. It's a, it's a psalm that speaks of the reality of life that, the, that we all know, right? Even in the midst of good things, we know that oftentimes, not to be cynical or jaded, but just like at any moment, there can be things that are gonna be hard. We begin to expect some of that. And God in his kindness has given us, obviously the totality of scripture, but a Psalm like this, like Psalm 81, to help us see sort of this framework or this paradigm that life is a wilderness. And there's particular ways that the Lord meets us in that. There's a goodness in that, all right? And so that's a, a big theme here. And as verse 16 speaks of then, as we might think about being out in the wilderness or out in the desert, and there might be a rock, right? There might be some things that you would expect from that, but certainly to have honey coming from the rock is not an expected thing. And like, what does that image mean amidst the hardships of life, amidst the life being like a wilderness or like a desert, right? Where we're lost and confused. What does it look like to stumble upon this honey that flows out of the rock? That's what we wanna to explore together this morning because there is a sweetness, there is a uniqueness, there's something that God is doing when we embrace the fact that life is this wilderness. It is this journey. This is a, a repeated theme that we actually keep seeing over and over again throughout the Psalms. And this one highlights it with this particular imagery. And I was reading a, a sermon years ago from Tim Keller um, on this particular psalm. It's actually the song that we just sang. I remember listening a year and a half or so ago, I think when that song came out, maybe it's been out a little bit longer and hearing the artist talk about how she had listened to this particular sermon by Keller. And that's what prompted the, the writing of that song that we just sang. And that line that there's this honey in the rock. And the way that Keller talks about this, I thought was really helpful because what, what do we mean about this, this sweetness? Like, what is that meant to evoke? Does that mean like all of life, there's just gonna be sweetness upon sweetness? Well, no, that can't be it because we just know the difficulties of life. But there is a sweetness that God brings about even in the midst of hardship. And there's something that he's doing to us. There's a particular way that he's forming us as his people. And so hear these words, he says, it's God's way of saying, out of the most unpromising situation, I can bring something good. Out of the rockiest times, I can bring love and joy, sweetness and beauty. In other words, God is saying, if you come to me in your times of trouble, I won't just give you enough strength to hold on, but I will bring out of the bad times something sweet and something joyful and something beautiful. So we hear that like, oh, that's what we need to be reminded of. That's what we need. But it goes even further. As we explore this idea of this honey in the rock, he begins to speak as well. And one of the things that we should see is like what God is doing in us. And so he says this, here's what I think the Bible is telling us. Out of your wilderness, God makes you something sweet. Out of wilderness experiences, God can make you like Jesus. He can make you something beautiful. He can deepen your joy. He can make you something incredibly sweet. Now hear this, for other people in their wilderness to eat from and to be nourished by. Friends, may we catch that vision to trust and to know that God is at work in the wilderness, that he's bringing this sweetness even in the midst of hardship. But it's not just that we would experience it, but it's also so that we would be transformed individually, but also collectively as the church into the kinds of people, into a community that exhibits a sweetness that our world is drawn to, that your neighbor and my neighbor might see and might taste the sweetness and the goodness of God, not because everything in their life is going just the way they want it to, but because they're meeting God in the midst of it. 
And so this Psalm is gonna help us answer this question. How can this become your reality? How can this become my reality? How can this become our reality together? And so I think as we break this Psalm down, as we look back over it, there are three things. I think there's three key practices, kind of rhythms of life that this speaks to. And the first that we see is that there's a call, as we look at the opening verses, there's a call, an invitation to practice rejoicing. It is not given as a suggestion. It's not like when you get time to do this, or I mean, look at the language. It says this, it is a command. It is the Lord saying, this is how you are to orient your life. He says, sing aloud to God, our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Do you, do you see right away? Like there is a boisterousness about this. Um, I like that line, shout for joy, all right? I cannot sing in tune, all right? But I think I can shout for joy, all right? That there is this response and it's the totality of who we are. Notice this is nothing timid. This is not a group that's like, oh, we're kind of worshiping, right? I mean, like there's this all in engagement. Raise a song, sound the tambourine, all right? So now there's all this instrumentation that's beginning to take place. The sweet lyre with the harp, blow the trumpet at the new moon. All right, I attempted to play the trumpet fifth through seventh grade. All right, um, that was a loud instrument. All right, I'm trying to practice that. I mean, there, there's this noise. Now, this probably somebody could actually, you know, play the trumpet correctly, but you hear what is going on here. It's like, there's something that's happening. The people are engaged. Blow the trumpet at the new moon and at the full moon on our feast day. What this actually is speaking of, and most commentators and scholars, as they look at this, will say, there's some keywords, some descriptors in these opening verses that tell us not just of a generic praise of God, but a call to rejoice in particular ways. That God in his kindness toward his people, as you read through the Old Testament and you get through some of the Old Testament law, all right, I'm gonna read out of Leviticus in a moment, which I know is everybody's favorite uh, book of the Bible. And I, you probably haven't memorized, but in case you don't, I'll read a couple of verses, right? Like there's these commands to have these particular feasts or festivals because God does not want his people to forget how he has been at work. And so it was very intentional. It's very like hands-on, very tactile, all right? God is like, I want the totality of who you are engaged in these particular practices. And one in particular is what this Psalm is speaking of. It's actually referred to as the feast or the festival of booths or tabernacles. It would be called by, by different things. And here's where it's commanded. In Leviticus 23, here is kind of the historical reference for how this came about. And this Psalm is describing it. It's saying, hey friends, don't forget to do this. Like what it calls to mind is the people gathering for this particular feast. It says this, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. Now when you hear booth, you're like, oh cool. Like I'll have a booth seat instead of a, you know, instead of a table. No, no. like booth translate as tents. Okay. So it's saying you shall dwell in tents. You are commanded to go camping once a year is what the Lord is saying. Okay. For seven days, all native Israelites shall dwell in booths or tents that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. And so the Lord has commanded this as this weekly, or sorry, this, this yearly feast or festival for an entire week. Why? So that not only would the people themselves not forget, but you hear the call to the generations. 
Because if one generation doesn't tell the next and the generation beyond them like won't hear of any of this and won't know how to rightly celebrate and to orient their lives to the goodness of God and who he is, and they will forget all the ways that the Lord has provided. And as I said, this Psalm is a wilderness Psalm. And so what it's communicating is this call back to where the people would gather for this week. Because you know the story, right? Like God brought his people out of Egypt. He brought them out of slavery. And eventually they, we'll look at this more in a moment, but they end up in the desert. And they end up in the desert longer than God's original plan as they're supposed to journey to the promised land. Well, there's disobedience, there's rebellion, there's grumbling, there's complaining, there's doubting. And so God says, well, this generation is gonna perish in the wilderness. And so for 40 years, there they lived, just circling around, wandering around there in the desert. And so when we hear wilderness, even, I think we can have a tendency to be like, cool, I love going out into the, the wilderness. And you're thinking like the Appalachian Trail, or you're thinking some beautiful trail or hiking in the woods. Picture more like the scorching heat of the desert where nothing grows, nothing flourishes. Like that's what the Psalm is speaking of. And this particular festival, this Feast of Booths was an intentional way for God to say, do this, leave the comfort of your home, your business practices, your normal interactions, and literally camp and be out there and remember that your ancestors once wandered and they lived in tents and to be reminded of this story and of God's provision and of God's grace, some unique ways that he met them in the wilderness as we'll see, but also to be reminded, like to have that point driven home. Like it's one thing for me to say like, hey, life's a wilderness, life's a desert, right? The scorching heat as we sit here in the air conditioning. But if we all were like, okay, next week, all right, um, Bring your backpacks, bring your tents. We're all gonna be camping out in the lawn out there for the, for the next seven days. Be fascinated to see who shows up, right? I, I wouldn't, but anyway. Um, we're to be out there and that, it, that's another level. Like, oh man, like to experience that. And he's driving the, home, the point home that man, life is a wilderness. It is like a desert. But the Lord says, you are to do this. I mean, look at the language in verses four to five. For it is a statute for Israel. Look at the words that I've highlighted here. It's a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. When, the God, when God went out and he began to pass over the house of the Israelites, so he put the, the blood on the, the doorpost, right? And he struck down the first there in Egypt to lead God's people out. He's saying, this is part of it. You need to remember your story. But there is something I think within our hearts like when I see those words, right? Statute, rule, decree. Like, I think if we're honest, we rail against those things. Those are not the words that we like to hear, right? I think we're like a cat being near water with those kind of words. We just freak out and we jump around and we're just like, no, I don't want anything to do with it. Do not box me in. Don't tell me there's this rule or there's this statute or there's this decree, particularly when it comes to worship. Like, Lord, aren't you after authenticity? This doesn't seem very authentic. You're telling them to go and do this. Well, how is that authentic? And we have so overvalued authenticity, I think, in our culture that we've come to misunderstand it that we think unless I feel it emotively, like then it's not authentic. But what if the most authentic thing you and I can do is actually to surrender to God and his plans, the creator God, our faithful God, our covenant making, covenant keeping God to say, I surrender to you, I trust you. What if that's the most authentic thing that we could do together as God's people say, oh, you're calling me to rejoice? And the practical implications of this is like Hebrews 10, 25, right? Where the writer would say, do not get into the, the habit of neglecting to meet together as some have, 
Like it's important what we're doing here, not in a legalistic way, but there's this sense in which we need to come together that God is doing something right here, right now. And so there's this rule, there's this decree, there's this statute. And I think the most authentic thing we can actually do is to surrender to that. The writer and philosopher, Jamie Smith says this in a great book, you are what you love, begins to explore, like how are our loves shaped? How do we come to like love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Like there's certain practices. And, And one of the practices, and the psalmist is getting at this in the wilderness is that you and I are called to rejoice. Like there's a command to do that. There's a command to worship. There's a command to remember because our hearts all the time are drifting. And so he likens, he uses this imagery of a compass. And he begins to describe the heart in this way and that if you have a compass and you're trying to navigate your way in the wilderness, right? Like you don't want the, the compass to be miscalibrated. Like you will quickly get off course and you will end up where you don't want to go. And so part of what's happening right now when we gather, just hear this, that God is recalibrating your hearts. He says it this way, the reminder for us is this, if the heart is like a compass, then we need to regularly calibrate our hearts, tuning them to be directed to the creator, our magnetic north. It is crucial for us to recognize that our ultimate loves, longings, desires, and cravings, they are learned. And because love is a habit, our hearts are calibrated through imitating exemplars and being immersed in practices that over time index or calibrate our hearts to a certain end. We learn to love then, not primarily by acquiring information about what we should love, but rather through practices that form the habits of how we live. Now, one could run with this and make it legalistic, but I think what he's getting and getting to is this. Like when we gather, when we hear the word of the Lord and we say, okay, this is what we're, we're called to praise, that, that God is gonna shape us and he's gonna mold us. And that part of the way we navigate the wilderness, part of the way that we experience not just a getting by, but a sweetness to find honey in the rock is by regularly putting ourselves in environments where we will praise God and allow our feelings and emotions sometimes to even catch up to that. And so ask yourself, are you consistently calibrating your heart? Are you engaged in this call to praise and to rejoice? That is God's invitation. And closely related to this as the psalmist does, as he says, okay, it's not just a call to rejoice and sort of a nebulous sort of thing. Like, well, just praise God for just kind of whatever. Like the Lord is very specific. Really what we have here in the next verses are a call to rejoice because it's rooted in this call to remember. And it's part of what we're doing when we, we gather. Part of what we're doing even together this morning is we're rehearsing this story of redemption, right? Of like who God is, the one who invites us, who calls us to worship. We confess our sins because we've gone astray. Our hearts have not been calibrated the, the right way. And we are assured of our pardon through the finished work of Jesus. Like all of these things that we even do here are intentional to help us remember the story that we're part of. And the psalmist is saying, you need to remember. There's a call to rejoice and a call to remember. Look with me at verses six through 10. So the psalmist begins to speak here. And in verse six, it says this, God actually begins to speak. The psalmist is recording this. And notice that it's not the psalmist. It's not the story of Israel figuring this out and strategizing and doing a whiteboard session and figuring out how are we gonna escape from Egypt, right? And they had this this whole movement to, to do that on their own. No, what we know of their story is this, that they cried out and that God heard them. And God was like, I will deliver you. So he says this, I relieved your shoulder of the burden. 
The Lord says, your hands were freed from the basket. What's the burden? What's the best? They are there to make bricks. They had certain quotas that they had to meet. And if they didn't meet the quota so that the Pharaoh could build these monuments to himself, if they didn't meet them, they would literally be killed and somebody else would step in to do the job. Everything about their very existence was about production. That's the burden. That's the basket they had to carry. And that lie has continued to this day, right? Like we continue to buy into that lie. We get ourselves enslaved because we think we are what we produce. Well, what if you're not producing that well? What if your boss doesn't think you're producing that well? Or what if you get to a stage in life where you're like, all right, I'm not doing the nine to five anymore and you've retired, all right? And then you're like, well, am I producing anymore? Like you see how if our identity is tied to production and certain amounts and what other people think, we can find ourselves very disoriented. Like I don't even know who I am in the world anymore. But the Lord has invited us to remember, like, it's not about production. It's about you belonging to the King. It's about you belonging to the covenant, making covenant keeping God and his love that he has for you. And he says, so I relieved you of that performance, right? I relieved you from that burden in distress, you called. That's what you had to do in this, this whole thing. This was our contribution, right? We called and he says, and I delivered you. And then he says, and what we have in this text are lots of like, almost like hyperlinks that take us to other parts of the story of the Jewish people, of God's people. So when he says, I answered you in the secret place of thunder, to them, they would know, oh, the place of thunder, the thundercloud, this is Mount Sinai, it's the law being given. Part of the way God answers and cares for his people is giving the law. And notice the order, right? God didn't call Moses up to the mountain, didn't call him to the top of Sinai, give him two stone tablets with the 10 commandments and say, go have the people follow this. And if they can keep this up for 90 days straight and do a good job with it, then I will liberate them from Egypt. No, they had already been liberated. God had already set them free. They're already feeling the affection of God. And God is now saying, here's how to best set up your life together so that you would worship me, that you would care for one another. This, the law is given as part of even God's grace to us. And then it tells us this, I tested you at the waters of Meribah. This is a particular reference. Again, there's another Old Testament reference. It's another way that the psalmist is communicating to us the importance of the wilderness. And so when it says the Lord tested his people, it's a reference back, and we'll look at this a little bit later, but it's a reference back to Exodus chapter 17, where God's people are out in the wilderness. Think about this. They've been led out of Egypt. They encountered the Red Sea and God split the seas and they walked across dry ground and he brought judgment upon Pharaoh and, you know, the horse and rider fell into the sea, like all of that, right? And yet they find themselves out in a spot where it refers to Meribah. It's another way of talking about the, the people grumbling and complaining because they didn't have any water. Obviously they needed water, but they're like, this is over, it's done. They're threatening to kill Moses because they don't have this provision of water. And what's so interesting and what we see really is this pattern is like the Lord brings them from deliverance, but then brings them right out into the desert. And as you read through the scriptures, keep your eyes open to that. It's a common theme. It's a common paradigm. It keeps repeating itself until he delivers them from Egypt, but they go out into the desert. And what we find is that Moses, near the end of his life, he writes a worship song. He's thinking back on all that the Lord has done in the book of Deuteronomy. He composes a song and in the particular song, he begins to speak of this journey like through the desert. And one of the things that Moses does 
is he calls attention to a unique, it's a, it's a first time that the Lord has named something. The Lord is spoken of because at Meribah, here's the story, right? The Lord provides water. How? He tells Moses to strike the rock. So Moses with his rod strikes the rock and water begins to flow. And years later, Moses is reflecting on this. And Moses is writing this worship song. And he's thinking about that time in the desert. And he's thinking about how life is all of a wilderness. It's all like this desert experience, not in a cynical or jaded way, but just a, a rightly understanding of like the, 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 the brokenness and some of the difficulty. And Moses says this, he says, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He's inviting people to worship. And notice what he says, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Do you, do you see what's happening here in this story? I mean, this Psalm is just kind of giving some of the highlights, but really it's about this bigger narrative, this bigger story of how God delivers his people and he brings them into the wilderness. And there's an intentionality about that because there is something and what we're supposed to kind of wrestle with is what, what does this actually mean for you and for me? Well, the implication is, is this, that God, who is the rock, and Moses reflecting back on this experience, looks back and sees the, the rock there in the, the wilderness and the, the striking of that, that rock. And he knows that, oh, like God himself is there with his people in the wilderness. That the implication, not only for the people back then, but for you, me here this morning, is that we encounter God in the wilderness. It's not to say we don't encounter him in the mountaintop experience. We thank God for those. But friends, the normative experience is that we encounter God in the wilderness, in the place of hardship. Like if we were to have a conversation and we were to, to sit down and you were to tell me your story and I was to tell you my story and we were to, to, to share openly with some vulnerability about the places where you felt the closest to God, where you just knew his presence, even in ways that like you couldn't fully articulate, maybe it didn't even make complete rational sense to you, but you're just like, I just experienced, experienced that honey in the rock. I experienced a sweetness and a joy, even though everything was just so chaotic and so broken. It would be wilderness experiences. I mean, those are the places that, that form us and shape us. And none of us wake up in the morning like, I can't wait for what's the new wilderness experience, right? But this is telling us that the Lord meets his people in the wilderness. That's where the encounters happen. I was thinking of a story uh, this week. Some of you will be familiar with, with her work. It's, um, it's the, the story of a woman. She's, I believe she's 73 now. Her name's Joni Erickson Tata. Many of you probably are familiar uh, with her. She is a um, distinguished uh, author and, and, and artist, but her story is one of when she was 17 years old. Parents were both super athletic. Um, she had uh, a bunch of siblings. They're all active, playing outside all the time, playing sports. Um, all of that was a big part of, part of her life. And when she was 17, um, on a hot summer day, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay near her home and underestimated, um, didn't, didn't properly assess the depth of, of the water. And she ended up breaking her neck. She had the spinal cord injury. And from 17 until today, right, um, she's been a quadriplegic, been bound to a wheelchair. Um, she's had to, she became a prolific painter through holding the paintbrush, like literally in her mouth, right? But you can imagine her, her story and growing up in a Christian home, right? I mean, she had, and if you've ever heard her speak or read any of her works, I mean, she talks very honestly about the resentment, the bitterness, the like, Lord, why this? Why is this happening? <laughs> Honey in the rock, sweetness. She's like, I know none of that, right? I mean, it, and yet, the Lord kept pursuing her. 
And he kept calling her like, hey, will you trust me? And to hear her speak, I want to read to you a, a quote of hers that speaks of meeting God in the wilderness. Again, as she's scripting her life, she never would have dreamed it up this way. She wouldn't have written it this, this way. But it speaks the fact that the closeness we experience so often, it's in that place. And so here's what she says regarding this wheelchair that she's been bound to, almost her, really her whole adult life. She says, I sure hope I can bring the wheelchair to heaven. Now I know that's not theologically correct, but I hope to bring it and to put it in a little corner of heaven. And then in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on my grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my savior, holding his nail-pierced hands. Then I'll say, thank you, Jesus. And he will know that I mean it because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship we're now sharing in his sufferings. And she says, and I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world, we would have trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered, not herself to be, but you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. Rightly calling it a bruising and a blessing simultaneously to hold those things in tension. This is a woman who has been in the wilderness and has found the presence and the closeness of God there. God is not abandoning you when you experience the wilderness. There's an invitation to know him at a more intimate level. It's not to be callous about these things. There's a hardship about just what life is, but friends know this, that God is in the wilderness and there's an invitation to encounter him. And that's why the psalmist continues to record the words of God. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, like the Lord is pleading with his people, listen to me. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. It's a a quick encapsulation of really the 10 commandments by summarizing the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. Like, will you worship me? Will you be devoted to me? Will you know that I am the one true God and I meet you in the wilderness? Because he says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then the Lord makes this incredible promise. Do you see this? He says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. And at one level, yes, it is like, I'm gonna fill it with, like, I'm gonna nourish you, right? But at another level, it can be thought of as open wide your mouth and I will fill it with my words right? Like I will fill it with remembrance of all the things that I've done so that you in turn can actually rejoice. So you can remember that you can rejoice, that you can praise me. Like he's saying, I will do this. All you have to do is open wide your mouth. He's going to sustain you. He's going to provide for you. He will allow you opportunities to praise him in ways you never would have thought possible. And yes, that will oftentimes come through a bruising that actually is a blessing, even though we would never have signed up for it. I don't know what it is for you, but I trust that there are things you can look back on and say, that has been a blessing that the Lord has used. But again, it wasn't something that you're like waking up in the morning, like, I I can't wait for this thing to happen, but trust God is with you. And lastly, this last practice, if there's a call to remember, a call to rejoice, a call to remember, there is a call to repent. 
Because as we know the story and the story in the wilderness, the people, they forget God's provision and they continue to, to run after their own heart's desires and their feelings and thinking that's the authentic thing. The authentic self goes and does what the self wants. And so here, these words where it says in verse 11 to 13, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Did not listen to my voice, the voice that had been so present with them, leading and guiding them. Reminiscent of what Paul would say in Romans chapter one, where the, where the Lord says, okay, I gave them over to their desires. You wanna follow your heart? Go for it. You want your will to be done? Okay, that's what Adam and Eve did back in the garden. And let's see how that played out. Like Lord, the Lord lets them pursue their heart's desires, pursue your authentic self and see where that takes you. He's hoping and he's pleading with them that they would again hear his voice, that they would return. Like friends, we are not going to perfectly rejoice. We are not gonna perfectly remember all that the Lord has done. We are going to forget. And in those moments, we can make a decision. Either we'll continue to pursue our heart and what we think is best and what we desire, or we can repent, which simply means to move in a new direction, to move back toward God and his ways. And when we hear about the people in the wilderness, we hear about Israel. And if you read the, the narrative accounts of their life and what was going on, I know I can stand in judgment of that. It's easy to be like, I can't believe they forgot the Red Sea. I can't believe they forgot that God, you know, killed the firstborn of the, the Egyptians and spared theirs, right? I can't believe that God provided them manna in the wilderness and yet they're grumbling and complaining. And yet if I stop for a moment, I realize I do the same things. And like the people of God there in the wilderness, when they're frustrated, maybe they're tired, they're just angry about their situation, the tendency can be to just reach for something thinking, you know what, that thing will satisfy. And there's a million things that you and I reach for all the time. A lot of times very, very good gifts that the Lord gives us, but we elevate them up to the place of a violation of the first commandment. We're making those things gods before the one true God. So that could be, again, right? That could be a relationship. That could be, that could be a career. That, that could be sex. That could be beauty. That could be anything, right? Like we elevate those, those things. And at the core, as theologians talk about the, these things, and for many of you, this won't be new, but I think it's helpful to revisit, lest we think for a moment, like, I can't believe those people that they would do this. Like, ask yourself, what do you grasp for in the wilderness? Like in those moments where your heart, it's not rejoicing and you're not remembering and I'm not rejoicing or remembering. Like, what are, the, what are the core things? Like at the end of the day, there's some root idols, some things that we just drift towards. And the reality is we drift toward all of these, but my guess is there's one that you have a propensity for, the one that I have a propensity for. Like think in these categories, what are you grasping for in the wilderness? Spoken of as an idol of power, an idol of control, of comfort, of approval. Like when you find yourself not knowing what to do or maybe not knowing like even how to continue in the wilderness thinking, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna solve this on my own. Like what do you gravitate towards? What does your heart think that it actually needs? So a few ways to think about this, right? As we talk about longing, power would be, if you've got an idol of power, it's a, it's a longing for influence or recognition. Are you able to exert influence over other people? You're able to have that kind of achieve a, a certain status, a level of recognition. Perhaps the thing that you grasp for is more control, less about the influence on other people, but more of like, no, I had a desire, like I had a particular way I, I, I wanted this 
my day to go, my life to go, everything you had a desire for things to go according to the plans that you had made. Well, what happens when those plans suddenly blow up? You find yourself getting grasping for more and more control. I've got to solve this. I've got to fix this. I just got to have, you know, if I just get more control, things will go better. Maybe for you, it's a comfort idol. It's a longing for pleasure. Man, life is too difficult. It's too hard. The wilderness is too real. Can I just watch 47 episodes of this next show, right? Or can I just, it could be any number of things. Like it's this constant pursuit of pleasure. If I just have this, can I just feel good in the moment? Is that the thing that your heart grasps for in the wilderness? Or maybe it's approval. It's a, it's a longing for acceptance. It's a longing to be desired. You know, this might be part of it for you when it's like, I can never say no to anybody. I can never say no to even opportunities. I don't want to disappoint somebody. And so you live according to the approval of other people. Friends, these are all things that are robbing us of life. These are all things that like the Israelites, which seems unfathomable when they've been freed by God and they start longing for Egypt again, right? Like we just want to go back and we think that's nuts, that's crazy. Except when the wilderness, when we stare it in the face, oftentimes we keep choosing our own slavery. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin, the scriptures tell us. And so what are you grasping for? Are you going for power, control, approval, comfort, some cocktail of all those swirled together, right? Like it's where we tend to go. Do you remember the, the story? Think about another wilderness, this story, the story of Aaron Ralston. Um, he was a mountaineer, climber, outdoorsman, a guy that's like, I'm gonna go solo by myself in all these canyons and do all these crazy things, right? Amazing stories. Well, um, there was a movie that was made about him after a best-selling book, This Is Him. His book was called Between a Rock and a Hard Place. Anybody remember this? 2003, he's out hiking in the canyons in Utah and a boulder gets dislodged as he's in this tight space and it ends up pinching uh, his right hand against the wall. Um, and the movie that was made, I believe is called 127 Hours because that's how many hours he was stuck in that canyon, right? Um, and there as he's running out of water and food and beginning to hallucinate and all, all these things, thinking he's gonna die in there, he does notice that eventually like his hand, like circulation is cut off and his hand is actually beginning to die in the lower part of his arm. And so with a, not even a real Leatherman tool, all right? He said it was a two inch blade. He bought a flashlight and it was the free knife that came with it, right? Um, he literally sawed his own arm off after breaking the bone so that he could kind of cut through everything. And as he's interviewed by people, right? As he's thinking about like being trapped there. Oh, not to mention after that, he, he had to like rappel down 46 feet and then hike eight miles out till somebody found him, all right? I'm like just tired thinking about it, right? I can barely put a Band-Aid on myself without freaking out about the amount of blood, right? This guy's like, nah. anyway. Um, and as he's interviewed, one of the statements that, that he made about, they're like, oh, but losing your hand. And he, and he said this, I, I did not lose my hand. I gained my life. And there's a perspective there, right? Where I think the insidious grip that idolatry has, that idols have in our hearts, like I can't give that up. I can't give up power or control or my, my comfort or the approval of idol, of, of approval of, of others, right? Like this idol, it's too real. I need this thing in order to survive, in order to be somebody in the world. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. And there's this invitation to repent, to say, okay, yeah, I lost that, but I actually gained my life. 
what if that was our perspective? This is what the psalmist is encouraging us towards. And then what God is encouraging us towards. He says, oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. It's an invitation. Would you repent? And as the Lord speaks to their particular situation, right? He says, I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him and their fate uh, would last forever. He's basically saying, I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to see you through to the promised land. I'm going to get you there. And there were particular things about their story and even people that were in exile and all of this, but just hear that God is with you. And yet, as we consider this, and we'll close with this, we look at this and we think about life as a wilderness. And even just those, there's more we could talk about, but just those three things. We're called to rejoice, to remember what God has done. And we're called to repent. Like as you and I live out this life in the wilderness, like how are you doing with those things? Because the reality is, no, I, I don't rejoice in the ways that I should. I don't remember the kindness and faithfulness of God. I don't repent of my idolatry. I sometimes revel in it and think this is the thing. I don't want to give that thing up. So how are you doing? Like what the question we got to ask, like what if you don't pass the test in the wilderness? right? As the Lord says, you know, I tested you there at Meribah in the wilderness. Like, how are we to think about these things? And friends, this, if we're talking about the honey and the rock, a sweetness, one of the beautiful things that we see is the way that this Bible, these pages are telling one story to the beginning to end about God's redemptive plan and how he's working through his son and how he's bringing a sweetness, even in the midst of the pain and the heartache and the, the bruising, how can it become a blessing? Like all of the, these things. And I told you Exodus 17 is where we get this, this, uh, this account of the desert and the, the people crying out for water and the Lord telling Moses to strike the rock. Look with me at this, this is Exodus 17. Because if we understand what's going on here, if we understand how the apostle Paul understood Exodus 17 and what he says about it, it begins to change our perspective. Because here's the reality. I don't pass the test in the wilderness. I fail time and time again, and so do you. And so Exodus 17, it says this, so Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. There's a couple things very quickly. Moses is instructed to take what? The staff. You remember what he, the staff was used for? Like the staff was used in Egypt, right? To form the signs and wonders, to, to literally instigate the plagues that came upon the Egyptians. I mean, the staff was used for judgments. Like if you were Moses in that moment and the Lord says, get the staff out, right? What's probably running through your mind? Like, well, these people are gonna get it, right? Wouldn't that have been just the, the natural thing to think? Like, oh, judgment is coming. And then what does it tell us though, Right? The Lord says, I will stand before you there on the rock and you shall strike the rock. And what happens? Water flows from it. And the people are satisfied and the people drink and the people are spared and sustained in, in all of this. And Moses had to be just bewildered. Like, wait, this thing of judgment and now the waters are flowing. And the apostle Paul picking up on this 
and us now knowing more of the story than the people would have back there wandering in the wilderness some many thousands of years ago. Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse four, all right? And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So God meets us in the wilderness, but even more specifically, as it says, as God was told, behold, I will stand before you and you will strike the rock. It is communicating, listen, the judgment was God himself. Jesus himself was that rock. He was the one that was struck so that you and I could find life. Like you and I did not pass the test in the wilderness, but Jesus did. Do you remember what happened when Jesus was baptized? What's the thing that happened next? He's led out by the spirit into the wilderness and he's tempted by the enemy. He's tempted to surrender, to follow his heart, to do these things. And he resists and he commits himself to the father's will. Jesus over and over again, passed the test in the wilderness. And yet he gets the rod of judgment. He gets the staff of judgment that is the cross. Where you and I should have been, Jesus gets punished in our place. And because he is punished in our place, you and I get his righteousness. And that makes anything that we encounter, I mean, there is now, there can be a sweetness in it. We can continue in this life. We can become a sweetness to other people together as the church, because we know I do not pass the test in the wilderness. I am rebellious. I am treasonous. I keep choosing to follow my own heart and I keep getting myself into a mess. But there is one who perfectly passed the test. Jesus was that rock. He was willing to be struck. You and I should have been struck. And yet he was in our place. And so friends, to the extent that we understand that, we will experience what the psalmist says. He's fed us, he sustained us, that there's a honey in the rock that is deeply satisfying. And so as we continue in worship, even just as a, a recap with these things, how do we respond? What is it that the Lord is leading you to repent of? What idol do you need to repent of? Let's remember God's goodness as we sing together, as we continue in worship. Let's rejoice together about what is true, about what Jesus has accomplished. So I'm gonna pray for us after I finish praying. We're, the worship team will be back up here and we're gonna stand to sing. At that time, if you've got elementary kids, you can go get them and bring them back in the service. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this Psalm. Thank you for this story that we're part of. Thank you for continuing to meet us in the wilderness. And Jesus, thank you for being willing to be struck there, to die in our place. May we experience the sweetness of that, to know your love, your mercy, your care for us. God, I pray as we sing now, as we rejoice together, help us to remember what is true. In the places where we have believed the lies of the enemy, may we be quick to repent, knowing that it's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. May we find grace and mercy there because of the cross. So God, get your glory. We pray as your people that we do experience just a deep and abiding joy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.